Ooh, hello my lovelies. I am so excited today. For as you have guessed, we will be talking about the Lord of the Rings, my favorite thing on earth. Well, one of them at least. So, yes. Welcome. Welcome to the 12th episode of the Struggling Archaeologist's Guide to Getting Dirty. I am Jenny, and uh, today we are talking about Tolkien. <sighs> I'm having a little nerdgasm as we speak. Uh, <laughs> I love J.R.R. Tolkien. I love Middle Earth. I love Lord of the Rings. I love Orlando Bloom. I love all things having come from his mind and otherwise associated with it. And I am a humongous nerd for this, and I hope you forgive me. But I see this podcast as a little bit of a platform sometimes to merge my worlds of academics and nerddom. And so I decided today that we would be talking about history and token. <laughs> so we're going to be going into the historical and cultural influences that Tolkien used in writing The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings uh, novels and, of course, all of his other auxiliary works like The Cimmerillion and, and uh, all of the accessories and such that he had floating around in his mind and written down in various places that didn't end up in directly in the, the stories. Um, so, it's going to be such an exciting show! Uh, I have a feeling that a lot of my listeners are also somewhat nerdy. I'm not labeling any of you if you are not whatsoever interested in Token or The Lord of the Rings or The Hobbit or any of that stuff, then eh, maybe this isn't your episode. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Although we are going to be talking about a lot of interesting cultural things as far as the history of Iron Age Northern Europe, um, including information and stuff and legends and mythology uh, having to do with cultures like Vikings and the Anglo-Saxons and the Celts, uh, which is also really just cool stuff in general. So even if you're not a literary nerd and you're not really into fantasy and all that, uh, maybe you might still enjoy listening to it for some of those aspects if you are interested in um, early historical uh, archaeology and, and history in, in Europe. So, so there'll be a lot of that too. It's not just going to be nerd stuff. I mean, mostly, but, you know, maybe a little bit of cool academicness. In within it. <laughs> so we aren't going to be doing a normal format today. Um, there's no news and goings on. There's no shorty news because literally, literally, I could speak for hours on end about Lord of the Rings and Hobbit and Smurlian stuff. So unfortunately I can't do that. I have to limit myself here. So we're going to, going to be covering a couple sort of larger topics in general um, background on Token and his academic um, influences. So, honestly, I probably I'll probably do another one of these at some point, just because I'll I won't have time to fit in everything I want to talk about today because the universe is freaking huge. So yeah, way too much. You know, at first when I thought about doing this, I I'm actually reading right now 
I've read The Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit, obviously. Um, at the moment, I'm reading the Song of Ice and Fire series written by George R. R. Martin. That's his name. I knew it was someone, someone else with two initials. George R. R. Martin uh, has written this fantastic series of novels called Song of Ice and Fire. And uh, they are, of course, the inspiration for the epically humongous and popular television series Game of Thrones, which I am a little obsessed with at the moment. And at first I thought, oh, I'm going to talk about both of them because I think anyone who has a skull on top of their body that contains a brain uh, can see that there are a lot of similarities in the inspiration for the these worlds of the Seven Kingdoms in Game of Thrones and the Middle-earth of Tolkien. But it's just, this is just way too much stuff. It's too big for one podcast to handle. Uh, this is not the podcast to rule all podcasts because I couldn't possibly contain the amount of information needed to be covered in these subject areas. And definitely, I, if I can't even get through all of Token in an hour, how am I going to talk about Game of Thrones? I just can't. I can't. It's too much. So we're going to save Game of Thrones for perhaps another podcast. Uh, maybe I'll give you guys a couple episodes in between as a break. I think there can only be so many literal nerdgasms coming out of the struggling archaeologist in one quarter, so we're going to spread them out a little bit. So anyway, why don't we get started because I am super, super psyched to talk about Token. <laughs> so let's get going. Oh, and by the way, I hope you enjoyed the intro music today, not my normal theme music. Instead, today we're going with uh, some Lord of the Rings themes um, from... I believe that one is the Minas Tirith theme coming out of perhaps the Return of the King movie, I'm, I'm fairly certain, uh, written of course by the brilliant and wonderful Howard Shore. So thank you Mr. Shore, you're awesome. Oh, and one more bit of housekeeping. I wanted to add for those of you who listened to my last episode, Volcano Cheetahs, or those who are going to listen to it, uh, yes, I totally realized after I recorded it that even though I know the pronunciation of the archaeological site I was talking about is supposed to be Gobekli Tepe or Gobekli Tepe, uh, I was mispronouncing it the entire time, basically. So, yes, I, I understand <laughs> I was writing it and reading it correctly, but something did not compute uh, between my brain and my mouth so much. So, uh, yes, it just kept coming out wrong, and I did not catch myself on that, so I am very, very sorry. I'm sorry, so sorry, and I uh, won't sing again for the rest of the episode, and um, there that is, just in case you were frustrated or annoyed at my utter stupidity. So, sorry about that. I will try not to let it happen again. And now, let's get back to talking about Lord of the Rings! Alright, so let's get started with today's discussion. We're going to be talking a large amount about uh, the major works published by Tolkien, which include The Hobbit, published in 1937, and The Lord of the Rings uh, trilogy, published in 1954 and 1955, though I will add, uh, I don't think Tolkien wrote it as a trilogy. It was split up by publishers. And then The Cimmerillion, uh, just a little bit here and there, which was actually compiled, I think, and published posthumously in 1977 by Token's son. So these comprise the main body, I guess, of his literature, although he has anyone who's 
read the books, you'll see there's tons of information in the appendices. He also had a bunch of other writings, um, legends and poems and other histories of Middle-earth that have been compiled and published since as well. So there's a huge body of literature to work from. But we're not going to be focusing as much on the literature as a lot of the cultural themes seen throughout the book and how they, how Tolkien was inspired to incorporate culture into Lord of the Rings or the whole thing, Middle-earth we'll call it, and what in his own life and history um, influenced themes characters, uh, languages, all, all of these parts of Middle-earth. So let's talk about Tolkien and basically we'll, we'll do a quick history of Tolkien first. Uh, J.R.R. Tolkien, name, his name, real name is John Ronald Rule Tolkien, uh, born in 1892 in South Africa, South Africa, and uh, raised in England after his father's death. He died in 1973. He's considered the father of modern high fantasy uh, by dorks everywhere. And uh, he was most famously known for being an academic and a linguist. He started studying languages very early in life. When he was a teenager, he was already studying Latin and the Anglo-Saxon language, uh, also known as Old English. And he was actually, a lot of people know that Tolkien basically wrote his own languages for the Middle-earth. Different cultural groups within Middle-earth speak different languages, and Tolkien basically developed all of those languages on his own. <laughs> They're not all entirely um, new creations. They seem to be based a large part on pre-existing cultural structures, and a lot of those are based in Germanic, which was Tolkien's specialty. But his first introduction to newly constructed languages actually came from two of his cousins, Mary and Marjorie, who had invented a language of their own that they called Animalic. And Tolkien was really fascinated by this, and so he worked with them to create a new language after that called Nevbosh. <laughs> and then Nevbosh was followed by uh, another language of his own called Nafarin. So he, from a very early age, Tolkien was experimenting with language structures and the development of new language, which I think is pretty awesome seeing what he went on to do with it, which is like crazy groundbreaking stuff. It's insane. Uh, so he went on to study classics at Exeter College, Oxford, and he actually went on to graduate with degrees in English language and literature in 1915. Of course, a lot of people know he was in World War I, um, so there is a period of history there where he was kind of developing some of the ideas for uh, The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings, um, but he was in, in war for a period. And then after that, he became an etymologist in Germanic for the Oxford English Dictionary, which is, I gotta say, that's like one of the nerdiest jobs I think you could ever have in academics. It's pretty damn nerdy. So I'm very glad to say that J.R.R. was amongst our ranks. <laughs> um, and after working for the dictionary, he became a professor of Anglo-Saxon at Pembroke College. And uh, during this period in his life is largely when he wrote The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings. And then, um, of course, he became a huge academic, he continued to develop um, both his knowledge of languages and 
his writing on the universe of Middle-earth uh, throughout the rest of his life. And I would say his particular interests, mainly academically, were grammar and the construction of languages, especially in Germanic tongues. And if you, are, you understand the um, linguistics, evolution of language groups, you'll know that uh, English today is a Germanic language. So, as opposed to the Romance languages of France and Italy, blah, blah, blah. Uh, so, he was very much a student of uh, Old English, which is Anglo-Saxon, and its evolution into Modern English. So, this is a lot of where his knowledge of languages comes from, and I don't know how many languages he ended up speaking, uh, through, uh, learning throughout his life. A lot. <laughs> Uh, which really just makes me tired. I've been trying to learn French since I was in eighth grade, and I'm not gonna relay how long ago that was, but it was a really long time ago. So, yeah. The fact that I can't even learn French after at least a decade is just depressing. <laughs> when Token, by my age, probably knew like five, six languages already, so I'm just gonna leave it at that. Freaking guy's a genius. Eh, it happens. So let us begin with a discussion on kind of the general themes in uh, the in Tolkien's Middle Earth. I'm sure you've noticed if you've seen the books or seen the books, <laughs> if you've seen the books or read the movies, that uh, the majority of cultures in Middle Earth seem to be based on Northern Europe. And when I say cultures in Middle Earth, I'm talking about not just human groups, but also the creatures and beings within Middle-earth, like elves and dwarves and wizards and orcs and goblins and all different types of creatures. They all have cultures. Um, they don't, you don't have to be human to have a culture, especially in Middle-earth. They've got their own histories and languages and their own material culture, um, which includes styles of materials and clothing and all that type of thing and they've got mythology and folklore and practices that are unique to their uh, their own groups so that will stand for the entire discussion and yes yeah lots of cultures going on in middle earth crazy ones uh very interesting and mostly based on reality so let's get back to that uh, I think the majority of groups that you're going to be seeing uh, represented in Middle-earth, um, and this is, I'm going to mostly be talking about the quote-unquote good groups. Um, there's a little bit of a different impetus for the background of your evilness groups, like the orcs and the um, goblins and orikai and all the, those people. And even the humans associated with them, like the Men of the East and the Herodream and all that. Uh, anyway, that's going to be a little bit separate, and I'll probably talk about that later. But for right now, let's focus on the major groupings that you find in Middle-earth that we spend the most time with that are quote-unquote good, <laughs> uh, which is subjective, I'm sure. But uh, okay, so we've got Nordic groups like Vikings uh, heavily influencing, I would say, um, a lot of the Rohirrim, the dwarves too, I'd say. And then we've got Anglo-Saxons, which I will talk about later. Big, big, big influence on the Rohirrim. Uh, and then we've got Finnish, <laughs> the, the people of Finland, heavily influencing the elves, and uh, then Germanic peoples. And Germanic peoples kind of blends into the Anglo-Saxon world as well, but you see a lot of that in 
the dwarves, the men of Rohan and Gondor. So those are some of your major groups. And then I'm going to place them. And when I say this, I'm going to say the majority of them are probably based on Iron Age groups coming out of Northern Europe in the first millennium AD. Um, that's not completely, you know, all over the board. There are certain groups that I think he emphasizes are in different stages, um, sort of different stylistic and cultural stages of development for certain purposes that have to do with their role in the story or their ideals and mindsets and the role that they play. So you get, you know, some medieval influences, uh, definitely some maybe a little bit of renaissance um, that we see, I think, mostly in Lake Town and The Hobbit, uh, the desolation of Smaug uh, <laughs> portion of that story. Um, and then you get a lot of other influences coming in from Mordor, which is sort of a allegory, I think, for the East, um, maybe perhaps Germany during world, you know, the world wars of this last century. And so, yeah, but I think the majority of uh, the groups and the ones we definitely focus on the most are representations of Iron Age Northern England. So um, I think it's a brilliant mechanism that Tolkien uses setting most of the fellowship in this era because it, it allows him to use the juxtaposition of that time period and those people against the cold, destructive nature of Sauron and his forces that represent this modern industrialist movement. And uh, so by setting those two up against each other, it kind of reinforces this overarching paradigm of good versus evil. Good represented by the quote-unquote old world, you know, with their connection to nature, their down-to-earth, their good, hearty people, and then the bad people or evil people who represent the rejection of that world through the use of industrialism and destruction. And I think that's also very representative of the world Tolkien was living in when he wrote this and his views on the encroachment of the Industrial Revolution in England into places that he loved, the English countryside, these smaller towns in England that he was seeing destroyed by the industrial process. So I think that is probably one of his biggest obligatory genius moments. And yes, I know I'm stealing this from Harry Potter. Uh, sorry, Harry Potter podcasters, but um, I think Tolkien, if anyone besides J.K. Rowling, deserves... Uh, an obligatory genius moment here or there. So that's a major one for me. And so we, we've got some themes going on in the, in the story of The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings. Definitely good versus evil. There are certainly religious themes that I'm not really going to go into because, God, that would take forever. It's a huge thing. But uh, anyway, so let's talk about some other themes. And I think a lot of the message or the thematic life of his, of Middle-earth and of these stories is so largely inspired by the literature that Tolkien spent most of his life studying that came out of this same Iron Age period in Europe. And I should point out, when I use the term Iron Age, that does not compute to one specific time period for all of Northern Europe. Uh, it's different uh, for different peoples in Europe. 
uh, iron, the term Iron Age refers to basically the first period of time when a people starts using iron, mining for it, smelting it, uh, and producing goods and weapons and things like that with iron uh, as a resource. So this happens at different points all throughout the world, and even in Northern Europe, it's a different scale for each people. So, and generally it does refer to the time before the Romanization of that area. So, like Central Europe and Southern England or Britain um, was Romanized earlier. So their Iron Ages before that of, say, the Vikings, who were not as much affected by the Roman Empire. And so they have a bit of a later Iron Age than the Britons or the Anglo-Saxons, I should rather say. The, the Britons, B-R-I-T-O-N-S, are actually more of a Celtic people who inhabited the, the English Isles or British Isles before the Romans. And so they, their period leading up to the spread of Rome is the real Iron Age in Europe. Um, so I think materially that's a lot more, and culturally that's a lot more of what we're going for here in terms of Middle Earth because they haven't been affected by that, that huge force of modernization that the Roman Empire was trying to spread and that Christianity would later go on to spread during the first millennium. So in Britain or England, that first millennium when we see the, the Anglo-Saxon period, uh, technically it's really more of, they called it the Dark Ages, but um, so you have the Dark Ages and then the early Middle Ages. So we'll be talking a lot about the Anglo-Saxon period. And just to be clear, that's not really an Iron Age. That's more of the early Middle Age. But it's not that big of a difference, really. The only main thing there is the influence of Christianity and modernization. So anyway, just to be clear, uh, picture the Rohirrim living in their hill forts, forging iron swords and working on great works of art and wood and, and metal and riding horses through the countryside. And what you're really uh, talking about is more of an Iron Age Britain culture with uh, Anglo-Saxon influences as far as art, language, and material culture is concerned. So I hope that didn't confuse you too much. Uh, it confused me. I may need a second to regroup my brain because it's melting. It's melting with facts. Oh, facts. So many. Uh, anyway. Okay, so now that we've got that time period straightened out, let's talk about literary influences in Token. And um, these influences are coming out of both the uh, Iron Age periods what, because they did have, were starting to write and record their oral traditions and sagas. And, uh, and then also, of course, the Dark Ages or Anglo-Saxon period, where you get some, some of our first really major uh, recorded um, saga and legend and history from these periods. So we'll start off with that, because that's basically Token's bag, baby. <laughs> So, ho, ho, let's talk about some of that literature that was uh, on Token's mind as he was writing this epic tale of awesome. So, there's a, there's a major influence from Dark Age literature in Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit. 
I think if you're familiar with the hero's tale, it's a deeply entrenched part of mythology. That's basically worldwide, but I'm sure you probably recognize it from a lot of Greek and Roman mythology. The, the mythology coming out of Northern Europe that Tolkien is focused on uses this hero's tale, but it's, it's in a different way sort of used within the landscape of the Northern European mythology as opposed to that of the Old World, which is where you find the Hercules story and all of that. So you've got different beasts, different um, challenges, uh, you've got a different landscape to uh, deal with. And so those are all weaved within the tale of the hero. And of course the hero, very similarly to Greek mythology, is like the best representation of your people. He fights, he's badass, he has foes that he battles. At, when he triumphs, it's not only him triumphing physically, it's a triumph of his inner strength. And so in the end, he is victorious, yes. And uh, so one of the first major pieces to come out of Dark Age or Iron Age Northern Europe is Beowulf. And as I think I said earlier, Tolkien was a scholar of Beowulf specifically. And uh, I'm sure most of you were probably forced to read it at some point in school. So just imagine you were trying to read it in English. And I remember Beowulf being somewhat challenging. Yeah, Tolkien was studying it in its original language of Anglo-Saxon Old English. So there's a challenge for you. But anyway, he obviously found many of the themes in Beowulf compelling, and they are all throughout the Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit and The Silmarillion and all that stuff. So what are they? Uh, the main theme I think you see is the hero's struggle against both the outside foe and his inner strength. Um, this is shown in like a billion ways throughout the stories, but you see Bilbo versus the dragon, you've got Gandalf versus the Balrog, You've got Helm's Deep, the people of Rohan and the Fellowship, uh, against a bazillion freaking crazy Urukai who want to rip their heads off. And oh, by the way, we've invented explosives. So yeah, so you got that. <laughs> oh, and those explosives, interestingly, being kind of like earlier, I was talking about the difference between the Iron Age and the early Middle Age, as far as I think I called it modernization. That's not really a good term. It's kind of relative. It's not like they're moving in a positive direction always. It just means a change in technology and style. So say the Roman and the Christian era, you had all of these different technologies developing and you see that also juxtaposed against the fellowship and the Rohirrim and all this at Helm's Deep because they don't have that technology yet. The encroaching big bad world um, of Mordor and Saruman and all of them have put, you know, been able to develop explosives and this bad technology. So that's also um, an example of the difference between the Iron Age, which is, I think, what we're supposed to be seeing set up for our humans and, and all the like, versus the future of the world. <laughs> so anyway, sorry, sidetrack. Uh, back to Beowulf. So yeah, we've got all of these great struggles between man and beast and, and evil and foe. Uh, but then you also have the inner struggle, I think best represented by the fight that uh, Frodo and Bilbo and uh, Sam, Samwise Gamgee, whether or not to destroy the ring. Well, and Gollum, Smeagol, uh, to a certain extent too. 
um, he fails, <laughs> but it's still an inner, inner struggle uh, to a certain extent. So we see that as a major theme. There are also other devices in the story that kind of come out in Token's work. Um, there's a conversation with a dragon, a little represented, uh, reminiscent, I should say, of the tete-a-tete that takes place between Bilbo and Smaug, the naughty dragon. And uh, there's also an allusion to um, the evils of being obsessed with gold and wealth, which is shared by that same dragon. And then um, in there's an allusion also to using riddles um, as a game of wits, which you do see also when Bilbo meets Gollum for the first time, and they kind of have this little riddle battle, um, which allows Bilbo to escape. So you see a lot of those themes. But, you know, the big theme is the temptation of power throughout the books, and that's definitely a theme of Beowulf. Um, another work that I know Token was involved with was the translation of the Arthurian legend of Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, which was actually written in the 14th century, but um, he was very familiar with that tale, and that is also largely about the knight battling the temptation of power versus being a, you know, good decent person. So those are some of the influences from Beowulf and that um, Anglo-Saxon literature. And then Tolkien got a lot of inspiration from language, uh, poems, names, from poetic sagas coming out of Iceland and the Nordic region. So there's a, a saga called the Poetic Edda, or Edda, uh, <laughs> And then there is a story called the Prozida from 10th century Iceland, um, which is a large, you know, it's a Nordic culture. And uh, Tolkien was familiar with that. And you can see a lot of the language there was used in the creation of names. Got most of the dwarves' names from the hobbits are from that saga and that linguistic uh, period. And also the name Gandalf was derived from those texts. So that's interesting. Um, also, a huge influence on ancient North European literature is the Norse mythology found in the Volsunga saga. And Tolkien was a student of Norse and uh, the Volsunga saga itself. He literally taught himself the language, the Old Norse language, in order to read the saga in its original tongue because when you're a major nerd, you can't just stop at reading it in your own language. Mm -hmm. So this tale is extremely influential and you get a lot of information from Norse mythology within it that is influential to Middle-earth. I think um, this tale is probably familiar to a lot of people because it gets recycled throughout history. It was turned into a Germanic legend called the Nibelungenlied, and that was the basis for Wagner's Ring Cycle operas, which I, you may or not may not be familiar with. But anyway, uh, it's the one with the chick with the Viking hat with the horns, and she's singing. And I think they used it in Looney Tunes once with Roger Rabbit, or not Roger Rabbit? Who are you? Uh, with Bugs Bunny, and it's that huge, you know opera woman singing with the Viking helmet on. Uh, but anyway, <laughs> that was Wagner's interpretation of the Volsunga saga um, and the German re 
realization of it as the Nibelungen Lied. So obviously the major theme of the ring cycle is a ring. <laughs> so there's this huge, powerful golden ring in the story, and I wonder what that inspired. But anyway, um, Token claimed he was only focused on the Volsunga saga when he was gaining inspiration for writing the, the War of the Ring story. So we get that. Uh, there's also a wand that's like basically like the wand that gives power to, the, to its owner over all men. It's like the Elder Wand, Harry Potter again, basically. But Token basically took that and just transformed that power and he, he like melted the two, so. Uh, and then there's a reforged sword, sounds familiar. Um, it all comes from the Volsanga. And a lot of people say, you know, Token was probably influenced by Wagner's take on it because there are different themes that Wagner added to the story, like the fact that the ring corrupts people and there's a struggle against that corruption, but Token was vehement that he was not inspired by Wagner. Nine! He did not like the opera. So, yeah, he said no to that. And he waved his finger in the air very with a lot of attitude. Mm-mm. So, anyway. <laughs> he, yes, in, inspired by the Norse legend and the Norse mythology. And you can also see the influence of North uh, mythology in the character of Gandalf. His name obviously comes from the Icelandic sagas, and uh, the Norse god Odin is basically a mirror image of Gandalf. <laughs> so, just a little bit of info there for you. And there's a lot of other influences, that some more modern uh, literary influences that uh, Tolkien used, but as far as the mythology and sagas coming out of that more Dark Age and Iron Age Europe, those were some of the really major ones. Oh, except for the Finnish stuff. Yeah, that's right. Let's talk about Finland. Finland, Finland, Finland. Sorry. Uh, more musical theater. So, yeah. Uh, Token also was a student of Finnish. He was a big fan, you would say. When he found a guide to Finnish grammar and he began studying it, he learned, obviously, Finnish because he's a linguist. It's what you do. And he read this uh, ancient Finnish saga of the Kalevala. And that text became a huge inspiration for him as well. Now, the interesting thing about the ancient dialect of Finnish that the Kalevala was basically told in, not really written in, because it was an oral saga, so these singers or storytellers would pass the story down from one to another in Finnish history, in the ancient Finnish world. And so the language started to die out until there was only this one little corner of northern Finland called Vienna Karelia, where the language and the tale of the Kalevala still existed. And in the early 19th century, it was almost dead, basically. The only it wasn't written down, the only way that that dialect and the story existed was because these rune singers, they called them, still had that knowledge. Um, so there was this guy who traveled to Finland and recorded the tale of the Kalevala, uh, which is good because I think now in Finland there is only one living man 
who's the one living rune singer, the last rune singer. It sounds like a really great movie. Uh, <laughs> who can still tell the Kalevala in its original ancient Finnish dialect. So anyway, of course, being token, he learned Finnish. <laughs> and he studied this tale, and it became a big inspiration for a lot of story, but also like language was the Finnish language was huge in his inspiration for the elven languages. So I don't think I have enough time in this episode to do a huge thing on language, but maybe that'll be my next episode. Token language is crazy, but I think the elvish language is what people really cling to because it's so beautiful and it's so well developed. Uh, and in case you didn't know, there is not just one elven language either. <laughs> the elven languages were split, like the elven people at one point in their history, into two major groups. And so as those languages evolved separately, they became two different groups. And so you get Quenya, which is the language of the high elves and the, the Eldar. And then you get Sindarin, which is more like the low elves, the lowly elves. But basically everyone speaks Sindarin in the long run. Hmm. But uh, Quenya is like a ceremonial language, I guess you could say. Quenya is highly inspired by Finnish. You heard it here, folks. Very interesting. So, yes. So you get Finland being a main inspiration for the high elf language, and you also get the landscapes of Finland, especially its forests, as a huge inspiration for the ancestral homes of the elves in uh, those wonderful forests that we get in the books. So Finland also becomes a huge cultural influence, and, and I think it's mainly on the elvish groups in not only language, but also uh, look, style, culture, that type of thing. So, yes. Let's see. Let's see. Oh, yeah, cultural themes in the Kalevala. So, um, the Kalevala has a story about a magical, powerful object. It's not described what it is. Uh, the object is called the Sampo. But it's very powerful, and it's about uh, the heroes who are in search of understanding that power. Very similar, but yeah, so there's that. Um, it's also got a lot of similar themes like demons, magical plants and animals. Uh, it's got a protagonist who happens to be this old shaman guy with a flowy beard and magical powers. Uh, so yeah, Gandalf is probably also partially inspired by the old guy from the Kalevala. <laughs> Sorry, dude. I don't know your name or else I would give you more respect. But for now, you're the old Kalevala guy. So anyway, uh, I'm sure I could go on about more literary sources and token, but that's all I got for right now. That's a lot, right? Uh, let's start talking a little bit more about culture and specifically what things are handed down from Northern European cultures to the cultures of Middle Earth. And I'm going to take a breath right now. Okay. And I'm ready to go on. More Lord of the Rings! Yay! So, we're gonna jump into the world of the Rohirrim, the magical horse lords of Rohan, home of King Theoden and brave warrior Eomer with his beautiful but sad sister Eowyn. 
standing in the wind with her hair blowing and so pretty and oh she should have been with Aragorn that made me so sad when she didn't and she ended up with Faramir and he was with the elf chick and oh sorry okay back on point here let's talk about those Rohirrim they are hands down my favorite token culture and I think they might have been besides maybe the hobbits Token's favorite token culture, too. So you might say they were the token culture of token. <laughs> uh, so yeah, the Rohirrim, I think token, I'm not sure if you said it out right or not, but they're most likely a full-on representation of the Anglo-Saxon culture of Britain. And for a very brief Anglo-Saxon history, for those of you not familiar, uh, Anglo-Saxons are basically a combination of different cultures of people who were emigrating off out of the northern coast of Central Europe, or I guess the northern coast of Northern Europe? Uh, <laughs> so confusing. Around 450 AD after the fall of the Roman Empire. So you get the northern coast of France, uh, the Netherlands, Germany, and Denmark. You get uh, these different groups of people the Angles, the Saxony uh, peoples called the Saxons uh, from France. And then you get from Denmark, you get the Jutes or J Jutland peoples. And so they all came across the pond to the British Isles, the lovely British Isles, which were inhabited at that point by those Celtic Britons and the remnants of those brought over from the Roman period. And so they kind of took over and they sort of assimilated their cultures and formed this big new fancy culture called Anglo-Saxon. And it kind of took over the pre-existing British Britain culture to a large extent and incorporated that as well. And so it was kind of a combination of all of these different groups with the Celts and then also to a certain extent with the Nordic Vikings uh, because the Vikings started raiding the British Isles um, sometime, I think, I want to say around 7-800 AD. So there was also influence from them. But by and large, the Anglo-Saxons, Utes, the people, the Anglo-Saxons who came out of the coastal northern Europe were Germanic peoples. So the Anglo-Saxon culture is based in Germanic. Probably the most important point I want to make about them. But anyway, back to the Rohirrim. Uh, they are largely inspired by this combination of Anglo-Saxon, Nordic, and Celtic influences. But largely Anglo-Saxon, if we're going to be honest. Alright, so um, obviously as a professor of Anglo-Saxon and a scholar of the Beowulf epic, Tolkien was more familiar with this than any other culture he used when he was writing Middle-earth. And the influence is very clear in the language, uh, names of things in Rohan, um, the social structure, the traditions of those people, their uh, resources, their material culture, their appearance, and even their folklore and mythology. It's all extremely similar to that, a combination of that Iron Age Britain, the land where there was a stratified society, there were hill forts all over Britain and Ireland, um, where there were lords who were living in these great wooden structures uh, surrounded by forts, and then they had this peasant 
farmer class beneath them. And so uh, they had a really intense uh, material culture where they had wonderful art, which is so, so um, beautiful. And you can see it's very strongly representative in Rohan as well, um, out, out of uh, carvings in wood and metal. So that's a huge part of where you see those reproductions of Anglo-Saxon um, in Rohan. So let's talk about some of the things that are kind of carried over that we can see as examples. We get the main seat of Rohan, which is where King Théoden rules from, in a great hall called Meduseld. And we see it's sort of a combination of this traditional hill fort with uh, a palace. It's uh, also a gathering hall. They all get, you know, there's great scenes in there where they're together drinking beer. Legolas gets drunk. It's so cute. Uh, and so we see that Meduseld has a bunch of these different uses. Uh, Token came up with the name Meduseld from an Anglo-Saxon word or Old English word meaning mead hall. So it's spelled differently, but it looks to be pronounced almost identical to Meduseld. So yes, <laughs> that's definitely an example of all of these names in Rohan coming from Old English. And so let's see, what else do we have? There's, I mean, I could just go on. There's like a million. Uh, <laughs> remember the horse that Eomer, AKA sexy uh, Australian guy. <laughs> oh my gosh, I love him. Oh, I love the, I love the, Austra the Aussies. Hmm. Okay, anyway, back to horses. Uh, there's a horse that Eomer gives Legolas when they meet them in the Riddlemark. Remember when he's like, I would cut off your head, dwarf, if it stood but a little higher from the ground. And then Legolas is like, you would die before your stroke fell. Uh, yes, I love that scene. But anyway, uh, Eomer gives uh, Legolas a horse. It's a pretty white horse. Its name is Erod. And the no it's actually uh, the horse is from the novel. It's, it's the name of the horse that stays with Legolas uh, through the entire rest of the journey. So it's his horse. And he takes it with him after the War of the Ring is over, just like Gimli. They're like besties. They're like three best friends who will never be pardoned. So the name of the horse, Erod, it comes from the Old English word for swift, which obviously Tolkien knew and decided would be a wonderful name for a really fast horse with a really fast and hot elf riding on the back of it. Uh, yes. Another interesting example relating to horses is that the other horse that Eomer gives at the same time to Aragorn when he's caught with Legolas and Gimli is named Hasufeld. And I have unfortunately discovered a little, well, I didn't discover it, I'm sure other people discovered it too, but there's a little movie snafu here for you, uh, movie nerds, because in the books, Tolkien specifically describes Hasufeld as a gray horse. And he really has to be gray because his name comes from the Old English words hasu and fell, meaning gray skin. Duh. But unfortunately in the movies, uh, Hasufeld is brown. So bad call, peoples in movie making. Uh, not that it's a huge deal, but come on. Gray horse, gray skin, Hasufeld. <sighs> anyway, horses are everything to the Rohirrim. 
I love that about them. And many scholars say that this stems largely from Tolkien's own love of horses. He had a lot of experience on horses from growing up in the country and also from his early days in the military when he trained as a cavalryman. But he didn't serve in the cavalry. He was then transferred to the, to the infantry. But anyway, he still was big on horses. So yes, there's a reason I think that he gave the culture that he modeled on Anglo-Saxons a horse as their spirit animals uh, because he was, he, he really loved the horses. So that's interesting. Um, also interesting is this, I read this uh, story and I can't be, it's not, it's unsubstantiated basically, like they don't know whether this happened or not, but one of Tolkien's sons claimed that during World War I, Tolkien found himself riding a horse. I think he was in France. Um, he'd gotten lost and he was trying to find his company. So he was looking, looking, he found a company of cavalrymen that he started to ride up to and as he got close to them, he realized that they were, in fact, Germans. <laughs> and they gave chase. They started chasing him on horseback. But he was very comfortable on a horse. And he was able to outrun all of those Germans and make it back to safety. And then later on, he claimed that that, that experience inspired him to write the scene in the books in which the Black Riders, or the Ringwraiths, are chasing Frodo to the Ford of Bruinen, which is uh, in the first movie you would see this scene. Um, it's a great sequence. It's awesome. It's when uh, Arwen puts Frodo on the horse with her and she rides and all of the ring wraiths are chasing her and she gets that scrape on her cheek and she looks really hot. Uh, and that's really great. Unfortunately, she didn't do that in the books, but she still looked good uh, in the books. Aragorn comes across uh, after Frodo is stabbed by the Morgul blade. Uh, they meet this elf lord named Glorfindel. And Glorfindel, in fact, gives Frodo his horse, Asphaloth, uh, and doesn't go with him, oddly enough. Uh, he just sends Frodo on his way, riding Asphaloth uh, through the woods, followed by a pack of ringwraiths, uh, to the fort of Bruinen, where he crosses and is saved by the grace of the elves. So anyway, wow, that was a lot of information right there. Whew, that just came all out. It was like a verbal explosive diuretic incident. And I think I need a second, okay? So yeah, there's a bunch of things about horses and language and movie things and uh, Rohan stuff. But I think one of the main themes that the Rohan are important for in the story is basically Tolkien's effort to sort of give the Ro make the Rohan representative of England's history. I think because he loved England and he loved Anglo-Saxon history, he wanted Rohan to serve as the same, sort of the same role as the Anglo-Saxons did. And it's very interesting how he does this um, because they're very much the, the culture that created the underpinnings of the modern English world. Uh, and especially the English language, obviously, since Old English became Middle English after the Norman Conquest and later on became Modern English. So the Rohirrim representing Anglo-Saxon, I think, demonstrates to the reader Tolkien's ideal model for all of the races of men in Middle-earth. Like, they're his, his hero, I, I should say, his model of, of Middle-earth 
Nis. And it also represents Britain during the Anglo-Saxon period, really because the Anglo-Saxons did become an, an amalgamation of Celtic, Germanic, and Nordic cultures. And that's what ended up in the long run creating English culture. And so in the books, you see all of these different groups in Middle-earth who represent those cultural influences coming together, creating a fellowship. And at the end of the story, those worlds are all united by the new king, Aragorn, who ushers in the new age, the age of men. And that seems to be what's going to preserve the union of all those different groups and serve as a new representation of all of Middle-earth culture, or at least all of the good culture, not the evil culture. Just in basically the same way as England ended up at the end of the first millennium representing all of those influences coming from Northern and Western Europe. So, and since I mentioned the fellowship, I just have to say this once in the podcast and get it out. And then I won't do it again, I promise. Okay, ready? One does not simply walk into Mordor. (laughs) I had to do it, sorry. Uh, So many memes. So, yes. Uh, I think, I love this aspect that Tolkien put into the story. It's not entirely obvious if you don't know a lot about English history or Dark Ages or Iron Age history, but it's still really important because through Rohan, they kind of become the vessel for this transition in Middle-earth, and it's the same way that Anglo-Saxon culture was a vessel for the transition of England. Eh, it makes sense to me, at least. So, because I think Token understood this really well, he takes a lot of time in the novels describing Rohan, describing the lands and the people. If you read that section in the book, it's like basically having a history lesson from Token, the professor, uh, on the warrior classes of Anglo-Saxon Britain. They're living in hill forts. They've got peasant farmers surrounding them. It's very similar. And we, we also get, as opposed uh, to the Rohirrim, we get the people of Gondor. And they, their interaction I find very interesting. Uh, I think Gondor actually represents a period a little bit later in history, perhaps the medieval period or the uh, beginning of that medieval period. But when we meet them, they're floundering. They're on the verge of being stamped out. They're being basically brought down by Mordor, and they can't do much about it, right? They can't really rise to power again until Aragorn leads them out against Mordor and unites all of the people of Middle-earth behind them. So they're waiting for this to happen before they can rise. You know, Aragorn has a lot of stuff to do before he can get there. He's got to go to Rohan. He's got to, like, bring this dead-ass army out of a mountain and free them from their purgatory and all this. Uh, but he does have to do that and to, and to bring the people of Rohan with him in order to help Gondor uh, rise to power and defeat evil. And it's very symbolic of the Anglo-Saxon culture being what is the catalyst for the birth of medieval English culture to rise after the Norman conquest and the development of that new Anglo-Norman culture, which basically takes over the world after that. So yeah, I think this symbolism is really cool. And I'm gonna go ahead and give it another OGM, obligatory genius moment there for Mr. Token. 
On a side note, I think you can also see this very literally shown by the love story of Miss Eowyn with Mr. Faramir. Eowyn representing Rohan, obviously, Faramir being from Gondor. Faramir is Boromir's brother, for those of you who are not familiar. Uh, the one who was not killed by a bunch of uruk arrows. So, yes. Um, so basically, they fall in love in the House of Healing. They unite the old world with the new, and they represent that physical union that creates the new world order. So, yes. And I think Tolkien really thought it did represent the new direction for all Middle-earth cultures, just it was the new direction for Northern Europe. So, there's a couple other things, I think, that lend to this. And that's how all of the other cultures are treated after the end of the War of the Ring. So, you see, as the Age of Men starts, uh, the Age of the Elves ends. And so the Elves are leaving Middle-earth for the Grey Havens. And it's similar to how the influences for the elves, the Finnish and Nordic and Celtic cultures, began to decline at this point because, I don't know, it was the Dark Ages, and uh, Anglo-Saxon culture had kind of incorporated a lot of that, but they were rising instead. And then you get the dwarves, who had really taken a back seat in the book since before The Hobbit starts, even, when the dragon Smaug evicts them from Erebor, and turns them into just a bunch of refugee groups. Uh, and this reminds me a lot of the Germanic peoples after the fall of the Roman Empire. You know, they're kind of spread out and they start fleeing and emigrating and, and uh, the Germanic culture from that point sort of diffuses much like the dwarves do. So yeah, there really is a parallel in a lot of ways to the transition of all of these Northern European cultures between the Iron Age and the medieval period. And so the future of Middle-earth really ends going forward with men and hobbits. And you know what? I just mentioned the H word, hobbit. So I know you're probably wondering for a while, when is she going to talk about hobbits? They're like so important. Why don't we do that now? Because I've talked about the Rohan for a long time. And I think it's time we move on to those cute little big-footed hobbit peoples. Um, inhabiting the lovely village of Hobbiton in which I wish to live in a small under-the-ground house with a round door and drink mead and garden for the rest of my life. And now, as for our heroes, little Frodo and Samwise Gamgee and Merry and Pippin, and all of the wonderful hobbits of the Shire. Ah, so let's talk about hobbits. And once more, we're going to draw parallels between hobbits and, you guessed it, England. And that's because Tolkien was absolutely passionate about English culture. While he gave many of the other strong characters and groups from his work um, influences from other places in Northern Europe, he saved his own culture for those of the hobbits who were the real heart of the story. We, you know, I said earlier that practically all of the 
most of the Middle Earth groups we see are based on Iron and Dark Age, Northern and Western European society. But the hobbits actually seem to have basically wandered out of early 20th century England. <laughs> they could have just been living in the countryside and no one would have ever known they would have fit right in. And that's because this is the world that Tolkien grew up in, where country folk represented a stout and hardy people tied to the land who just loved a simple, good life. And where after working hard all day in the earth, you would be rewarded with a pint at the pub, and uh, you, you would sing some drinking songs, you would dance a jig, and uh, you see all of these cultural traits represented in The Hobbits. So it's wonderful that uh, you see this prevailing message in The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings, that a small and simple people can change the world. Because I think that's what Tolkien believed, and uh, I think that says a lot about his character and his own feelings for his countrymen. So I think one of the biggest parallels people make when they talk about hobbits is tied to Tolkien's own life experiences, obviously with the culture and as well as uh, what the hobbits represent. So let's talk a little bit about that. Uh, a lot of um, inspiration for the main characters of Frodo and Sam are based on uh, Tolkien's experiences during World War One. He would have seen people like Frodo and Sam, or who they represented, in battle doing great acts of bravery and sacrifice. Um, and he would have seen all of this stuff, you know, a lot of the time performed not by gentrymen, but just by simple farmers and the like, you know, the people of England. And he saw the great power that they had and the great bravery that they had within them, and he used simple Sam and Frodo and Merry and Pippin as a way of showing that. Uh, so that's really cute. And one of the main things that got uh, flack when the movies came out, I know from the immature people of, of pop culture, was the relationship between Sam and Frodo. And when I state, there are many literary works where the story revolves around a great friendship between two men. So I think we can calm down now, people. It's not that, it's not that weird, okay? Uh, so anyway, um, and in case you didn't know, there was a girl in Samwise's life. Hello. Uh, <laughs> uh, and he ended up marrying Miss Rosie Cotton and having lots and lots of sex and babies. So I think we can put that rumor to rest, <laughs> at least for Sam. <laughs> so uh, the relationship between Frodo and Sam represents for a lot of people the relationship that Tolkien grew to appreciate between British officers and their valets or their batmen. And officers in the British army generally were not encouraged to really bond or, you know, befriend the enlisted men um, because it, it, I don't know, it's just a reflection of the social order of the time in England where upper and middle classes and lower classes were not, um, you know, they didn't mix very much unless you were in Downton Abbey, of course. But anyway, um, they did interact in real life. Come on, of course they did. In fact, officers, depending on your position, you might have an enlisted or NCO man 
sort of assigned to you, uh, who's there to take care of you, keep uh, track of your stuff, um, help you do whatever you need to do in order to be a good officer and get your job done. And this was your Batman. And uh, Token experienced this in war. He grew very close to a lot of the enlisted Batman that he was working with. And I think he was pretty open about the fact that these men inspired him to write one of his most beloved characters, that of Samwise Gamgee. Token said once that his Sam Gamgee is indeed a reflection of the English soldier, of the privates and Batman I knew in the 1914 war, and recognized as so far superior to myself. Oh, isn't that sweet? <sighs> so yes, Sam's devotion, bravery, and selflessness is a really great reflection of the really brave men that Token grew to depend on in battle. No matter what class they came from or what they did for a living, that's what was important. And as Frodo says in The Two Towers, Frodo wouldn't have gotten far without Sam. And I'm sure the officers of England agreed that they would not have gotten far without their Batman. So there's uh, one thing that came to the novels from Tolkien's war experience. Unfortunately, many of the other inspirations for The Lord of the Rings and Hobbit stemming from Tolkien's war experience are based on the extremely negative impact of war on him and on the world in general. Uh, the nightmare and the evils of war. And this is really represented by the evils faced by the Fellowship, represented mostly by Sauron, but also by the many people uh, and group, you know, not just peoples, but peoples, animals, orcs, uh, wargs, things that he has working for him and that have been corrupted by his power. They basically create in Middle-earth a very similar landscape of, uh, of war to what Token experienced on the battlefields in World War I and what he detested, namely the destruction of nature, uh, the use of technology to, weigh lace, to, to, lay, uh, to lay waste to peoples and uh, places and to murder, the abuse of power, and the scars that were inflicted on good men um, who stood up and fought against it. So, uh, Token's love of nature and things like trees is often really evident in the story. He has a lot of characters that kind of represent this, like the elves, uh, the hobbits, the Ents, uh, the character of Tom Bombadil, who's not in the movies, unfortunately, but is a big part of the book. And uh, he also lovingly describes a lot of the landscapes and the forests in Middle-earth, so you can tell that he really comes from a place of respect and love for nature. So he he's very intentional by doing that and painting painting such a vivid picture of the contrast between that and everything relating to Sauron's control with the destruction of nature, the triumph of industrialization, the perils of progress in these terrible mechanisms of war. And so in his descriptors also, you know, as opposed to the beautiful landscapes and forests, you see all of Sauron's lands. They've been laid waste. They're uh, horribly destroyed. Nothing grows there. Token spends a great amount of time describing these wretched, wretched environments. Uh, and a lot of this takes place, from what I remember, during Frodo and Sam's descent into Mordor, when uh, they're making their way across 
to uh, destroy the ring, and then when they're with Gollum in the Dead Marshes, which was very vivid in my memory from reading the books the first time. So there's a lot of parallels there between those uh, environments and the environment of war. Uh, Mordor, particularly, is a land that's completely inhospitable to life and happiness and sun sunlight and butterflies and puppy dogs. Uh, it's full of horrid smells, gases. Um, it's been completely destroyed. There's fire everywhere and there's danger everywhere you turn. And um, I remember particularly the section of the book when Frodo and Sam are in Mordor making their way uh, towards Mount Doom, and they get stuck on that road, um, and the orc army is approaching, and they think they're going to, you know, be discovered, and then they get taken in by the orc army, and they escape. But this scene was, uh, has always been, in my mind, very reminiscent of No Man's Land, uh, which existed on the Western Front mostly in World War I, in between the trenches of each side. It was just this horrible wasteland full of barbed wire and dead bodies and it, it would have stunk of decomposition it would have had uh, horrible smells sounds from the dying uh, gases from the poisonous gases being used on each sides against, uh, against each other so it's very reminiscent of that and something that definitely token would have had real life experience with so when he's writing the descriptions of mordor uh, I'm guaranteed that's what he's drawing off of, especially because he was involved in one of the largest battles of World War I, the Battle of the Somme, which coincidentally I have a relative who was unfortunately killed in the Battle of the Somme. Uh, I think he was my grandfather's brother? Or, I think so. Or his uncle. Uh, anyway, so yeah, really devastating, devastating battle, and uh, unfortunately Token was there and he witnessed the destruction the, the, the battlefield after. Um, so he actually, I think, used the imagery from seeing the battlefield after the Battle of the Somme in his uh, invention of the Dead Marshes. And the Dead Marshes are a very uh, important descriptive part of Frodo and Sam's journey. <laughs> they rep represent a lot of things. Um, but it mainly has a huge parallel to the, the battlefield uh, after war in the bodies and the dead and the people who are left there uh, for all, you know, basically trapped there forever as they are in the dead marshes, all dead, all rotting. Um, and this is a really disturbing imagery that unfortunately comes from a very real place. So, yes. I have a, a line, a couple of lines from the two towers in which he describes the dead marshes. It says they lie, uh, this is from the, the actual book. It says they lie in all the pools, pale faces, deep, deep under the dark water. I saw them, grim faces and evil, noble faces and sad, many faces proud and fair, with weeds in their silver hair, but all foul, all rotten, all dead. That was the passage of the marshes. And I'm sure you'll recognize the last line from Gollum. <laughs> Gollum Schmiegel. Anyway, ah oh man, there's much more that could be added about this and about World War One and about all of that. <laughs> but I don't, you know, obviously I can't go on about it forever. Uh, one more thing I wanted to point out is a parallel made between in the finale of The Return of the King 
when the hobbits returned to Hobbiton and the end of the war, uh, which is probably a lot like the end of the war that Tolkien experienced when he returned to England. In the books, the hobbits return to back to Hobbiton, to their home, and unfortunately, their home hasn't been spared the ravages of war as it is in the movie. In the movie, uh, Hobbiton is fine, it's a happy place. Um, in the books, Sauron actually, and Wormtail actually uh, go to the Shire and they start to destroy it. And so the hobbits, the four hobbits return there and there's actually another battle sequence where they kick Saruman's ass and they kick him out of, they think they kill him in that, in that sequence. And uh, he, or Wormtail kills him. And they have to save Hobbiton from this evil as well. And so for them, I think seeing their own homelands affected and destroyed by war was probably the greatest tragedy of this story because that was the thing that kept them going the whole time, was getting home. Anyway, they do fight Saruman off and they stop the destruction. They're welcomed back as heroes. But despite that, returning to this civilian life isn't easy as it is for anyone coming back from war. They suffer from mental wounds and physical wounds. For Frodo especially, it's something that he can't recover from. So, unfortunately, Mr. Frodo leaves Middle-earth for Valinor. In a scene which I'm not even going to talk about, that scene at the end of Return of the King when they leave, he leaves on the boats and everyone's crying and sobbing. I can't, okay? I just can't. It's, it's not fair. I think they knew what they were doing to us when they put that in there. And I'm just going to say, Mr. Jackson, that was not fair. And I do not forgive you. So, moving on. I don't think you can ignore that parallel. It's clear as day. Token himself returned to England in 1916. It was not the end of the war, uh, yet he actually had uh, come ill. He got trench fever, he got very sick, and he was sent back to England and spent two years recovering before he was uh, healthy again. That's a long time. It's a serious illness. So it, spent, it took him two years to get better, and then um, when he came back to England, as I'm not sure, I mean, I'm sure people over in mainland Europe knew that England had not been completely spared by the war, that there had been bombing raids from Germany, but he came back, obviously, to the homeland he loves and also saw that there was destruction there as well, which is a pretty good parallel. And then, like Frodo, he had to deal with the repercussions of coming back from war and trying to move on, which is not easy. So most of his friends actually died in the war, his closest friends. He definitely would most likely have himself if he hadn't gotten sick, so it's kind of a hard existence. And so I think when he writes the end of Frodo's journey, it may have been a little bit cathartic for him, because he was able to give Frodo this ending that brought him peace. Even though he separated him from his friends and from Sam, at least he, would, he, he gave Frodo peace, which is something that I think a lot of soldiers never got when they returned and would have wished for themselves. So, yeah, I think that's a pretty fitting way to sum up the World War I influences on Lord of the Rings and all that. There's a lot more, um, especially if you want to start talking about the people represented by the evil in the stories like Sauron and the orcs and uh, Saruman and all of this stuff. But that's, we're already at an hour. This is the long podcast already. 
And as much as I would love to talk about the Lord of the Rings all day, I just can't. There's too much, my friends. And so, ah, I think that's going to be all for today as far as academic stuff, except I think I wanted to throw in a moment of anthropology for you, because I know this has been largely historically-based discussion. I think because, just because uh, I'm an anthropologist, I should probably say something about anthropology. So, yeah. And I guess all I wanted to add about that is that for people who are like, oh my god, Token, like, what's the big deal? He's just an author. A lot of people write books. Why is he so special? Oh, God, Lord of the Rings, it's so boring. Um, okay. First of all, I hate you. Second of all, there's a very big difference between authors who write a very thin description of their characters and people. Um, maybe their main characters are developed, but auxiliary characters are just kind of like, eh, this is what he looked like and this is how he acted. No history, no background, no explanation. For instance, if vampires and wolves hate each other, uh, for a lot of authors it's like, why? Um, just because? That's never an answer you would find in Token. This is why he's a genius, and there aren't actually a lot of geniuses writing. <laughs> but, you know, it happens. Um, Georgia R. Martin certainly has this gift. J.K. Rowling, I mean, obviously. Harry Potter, awesome balls! So, yes, Tolkien, uh, obviously, and I think this comes from an extensive amount of time that he spent in the academic world, um, researching past cultures, obviously, he understood culture. He understood people and he understood the products of cultural processes as far as behavior, um, social structure, the creation of mythology and folklore and art, and all of these things that you see to a really ridiculously detailed standard in all of Middle-earth. <laughs> and if you're looking for a lot of this information as far as the history of how all of these different groups and creatures came to be on Middle-earth, then read the Cimmerillion, read uh, the histories that have been compiled and published at, uh, since Token's death. This is where you're going to find a lot of this information. And so, as an anthropologist and from this standpoint, it's really amazing because what we do as far as trying to understand how cultures develop and function today and in the past, you get that in token. You get all of it in token. So it's just amazing. So check it out for yourself. You get detailed histories. You get an explanation of how the cultural traits that you see in a culture developed re regarding what type of environment they were functioning within, what type of strategies they came up with in order to, uh, to thrive in their environment, and how that became the underpinning of their technological uh, capabilities, and how the resources and the way that they dealt with that um, helped develop who they were as far as social structure and kinship and their traditions, their material culture, um, and the superstructure, which is their mythology, folklore, art, music, religious beliefs, anything like that. It's really a ground up, layered, very layered society. And because we have all of this in token, you don't just get that explanation of for instance, why do elves and dwarves hate each other? Uh, just because. That's the furthest thing from the truth in Token. That's not the right answer. There is a very detailed history between them that explains this. 
and we also know enough about each of them culturally to understand what sort of what sort of processes and traditions hel are helping to reinforce their cognitive structure that keeps this animosity going. Like, why do the dwarves understand it in this way? Why do the elves understand it in this way? And how does that influence their behavior? So, yes, very detailed, um, anthropologically very rich, and it's just fantastic, because Tolkien's awesome. I mean, seriously, who are you? Who does that? Ugh. Anyway, that's enough nerding for right now on anthropology, and I'm glad that I could contribute something of academic worth finally to this discussion, I hope. So that's that. And um, I've been talking for an hour and a half, and I'm sure you have other things to do with your life, but I'm so glad that we could spend this time together and talk about Tolkien and Lord of the Rings. And I'm very animated, but you can't see me, but I'm shaking up jazz hands. I'm so excited. So thank you guys so much for listening to me completely dork out on this episode of the Struggling Archaeologist's Guide to Getting Dirty. And if you didn't think that I had surpassed my nerd threshold for one episode, I'm just going to top it off with this. I'm leaving you guys today with a poem in Elvish. That's right. I'm going to do my best to uh, give you a good, proper Elvish pronunciation. I'm going to channel my inner Legolas. Hmm. Legolas. Uh, I guess more like my inner Galadriel, which is means I get to use my elf voice and speak really low down here because that's how they talk. It's very calming. Oh, la, 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 la. That's how they sound to me. So, um, yes, this is a poem in Quenya based on the Finnish language by J.R. Tolkien entitled Namarie. Now, uh, please don't laugh at me as I sign off, but I hope you all have a wonderful, wonderful life. And thank you for listening. Read your token. And here is... Alorie lantar la si surinum, Yeni unotime varamar adaron, Yeni valinte yildaravane, Mi oromorandi lisi muri zarive, Andune pele zardo telumar, Nuluni yasen tintilar elayene, O mare are tari lirine, Siman iul manin in quantuva. I love you like a lot.